Hi, and welcome to Communicating Climate Change, a podcast dedicated to helping you do exactly that. I'm Dickon, and I'll be your host as we dig deep into the best practices and the worst offences, always looking for ways to help you and me improve our abilities to engage, empower, and ultimately activate audiences on climate-related issues. This episode features a conversation with Mary Dupar, a senior technical advisor in the Global Risks and Resilience Program at independent global think tank ODI. It was recorded in December 2022. Mary, whose expertise lie in climate risk management and ecosystem-based adaptation to climate change, works with colleagues in Africa, South Asia, and Latin America on enhancing and restoring ecosystem functions for nature and people as part of a holistic approach to implementing the Paris Agreement. She's also worked extensively on social inclusion, especially regarding the rights of women and historically disadvantaged groups in climate policies and investments. Mary's been at ODI since 2010, where she previously worked as Head of Knowledge Management for the Climate and Development Knowledge Network. She also serves as the technical lead of the Knowledge Hub for Gender Equality in a Low-Carbon World. Mary provides research support for the Climate Ambition Support Alliance too, which works to amplify the voice and influence, as well as defend the interests of, small island states and least developed countries in international climate negotiations. Before joining ODI though, Mary worked as a senior research associate at the World Resources Institute, and was also a campaign coordinator and science writer at RSPB BirdLife, working especially on tropical forest restoration, renewable energy, and marine conservation. In short, Mary's a pro. Amongst other things, our discussion explores where and when certain messengers might not be the best choice, how communicators can work with partners for greater impact, and the importance of always remembering to put things in local terms. So, let's get on with it. This is Communicating Climate Change with Mary Dupar. Perhaps you could say a little bit about ODI and also the work that you do there, just a general kind of introduction so that listeners have an idea of the the surrounding context of this conversation. Sure. Well, I'm a senior technical advisor at ODI, which is a think tank based in the United Kingdom, but working really on a, a range of climate change and development and humanitarian affairs all around the world. And it's interesting because ODI used to be called the Overseas Development Institute and used to be about sort of the business of international development. But now it's really about um, all of global society and how we can pull together to address common challenges such as climate change and the rebranding as ODI recognises how much work there is to do in the global north to get their own greenhouse gas emissions in check and thus avoid some of the worst impacts on more at-risk parts of the world. About half of my time is spent with the Climate and Development Knowledge Network, which is a network of partner organizations working across South Asia, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa and South America, helping people to tackle climate change where they live, um, principally looking at climate resilience, actually, and adapting to the effects of climate change. So I do spend a lot of my time working with some fantastic um, partner organizations on that, and the rest of the time working on ecosystem-based approaches to climate change in all sorts of different countries. So to some of these questions then, from your perspective, how can communication contribute to mitigating the worst effects of climate change in the first place? Well, it's long been said that tackling greenhouse gas emissions is an all of society affair. So I think that communication can drive collective action to cut and avoid greenhouse gas emissions. But 
importantly, it can also help people to feel a part of something bigger. So I think there's both a practical aspect to it and a psychological aspect as well. And engaging in a public conversation about climate change is really important because I think it can give people a sense of urgency and also a sense of doing something meaningful. Because if we're acting collectively, then there's hope, right? I think if you feel that your actions are not making a difference, that you're acting in isolation, then it's easy to lose hope and get demotivated. And what we really need now to face up to the climate crisis is motivation and ambitious action. If we take a step back even from there, at the most basic level, communicating on climate change has been about helping people to probably recognise and make sense of some of the changes in the environment around them. So those public conversations have been about acknowledging that climate change is real, that human beings have had a hand in causing it, and overwhelmingly those historically high emitting countries like the US and the UK and European countries, and then forming a collective understanding that climate change is happening. And from that comes the impulse to act on the root causes. So back to the role of the climate communicator. Um, yeah, I think we're sort of catalysts or catalyzers, aren't we, for these conversations. And um, I see effective climate change communications as being almost like a marriage of tapping into people's lived experiences about how the environment's changing and talking about um, changes in the climate and the kind of actions that would be useful to tackle climate change and to bring all those things together, um, you know, in, in a way that that empowers people and makes them um, really feel enabled to make a positive change. You mentioned, of course, the impact of large developed countries like the US, the UK, etc. How does the challenge of communicating climate change differ between uh, in industrialised countries and the developing world? So I have a feeling that the differences are probably less than they used to be. That's just from my own experience. As I said, I work for the Climate and Development Knowledge Network, which is focused on engaging with different groups on climate change in the global south. And I've been there for 12 years, in fact, uh, with this network. About, you know, seven to 12 years ago, we found that most guidelines about um, climate change communications that were coming from the global north were all about counteracting misinformation campaigns by climate change skeptics and deniers. And they were about convincing the general public that climate change was real and driven by human activity and that we have the power to do something about it. Whereas already in the global south at that time, generally speaking, and I'm generalizing, there was um, less of that denialism that climate change was happening. It was certainly in the media and in the public conversation. One of the experts I've had a real privilege to work with in, in my professional career has been Dr. Yuba Sukona, who's a, a vice chair of the IPCC, and he's a climate scientist from Mali. And he likes to say that you don't go to rural Mali and tell anybody over the age of 40 years that climate change is happening because it's so obvious in their lifetime. They've seen it all around them and the awareness is there. So 
as I say, about, you know, seven to 12 years ago, um, we saw this greater consciousness um, in developing and least developed countries. I would say that um, climate change is happening and it's really serious. And in the more industrialized countries, there was still that strong, strong vein of skepticism and climate communications thinking about countering denialism. Um, But more recently, sad, but it's true. Um, I think that those very damaging climate-related disasters, um, such as heavy rainfall and floods and heat waves, have been on the increase um, the world over. And they've been affecting uh, the richer, the more industrialized countries more deeply and in a more widespread way. And I think this is really bringing home the message of how serious uh, climate change is to everybody in the world. So really, I see in a way that the public mentality and awareness of the dangers of climate change is now catching up in the global north to where it has been in the global south for quite some time. Our chat was taking place hot on the heels of COP27 and the historic agreement to provide loss and damage funding for vulnerable countries. I wondered what Mary might have to say about that and whether she felt there'd be any particular opportunities or challenges in terms of communication. It certainly moved on the conversation, hasn't it? The um, commitment that some kind of funding arrangement would be made by the international community um, to address loss and damage. And of course, loss and damage is an issue. It's got several sides to it. You know, um, the UNFCCC, that uh, United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, talks about averting and minimising and addressing loss and damage. And the whole averting and minimising is really about adapting to climate change so that countries and communities don't suffer that loss and damage to start with. Uh, So that's where you know, adaptation efforts uh, can really step up. And then I think uh, what, you know, countries are hoping will come of this new loss and damage funding mechanism when it's set up is that it will really address the losses and damages that have already been suffered, either because the adaptation wasn't enough or because the kind of the size and scope and scale of the climate hazard was so big that there was some inevitable uh, loss and damage anyway. I think what's really valuable and helps us as communicators as well is that there's a deepened understanding in the past few years about how adaptation to climate change needs to be really locally specific. I mean, it has to be framed by a country's laws and policies and everything that's going on financially, but it has to be really locally appropriate. And that um, really challenges us as communicators to make sure that we're framing our messages correctly and we're working in the right communications partnerships so that um, people really uh, get the most locally appropriate messages and 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 therefore they they respond appropriately as well. And I'll give you an example of that, um, which would be in agriculture. So we know that the way the climate is changing, some crops are not going to be suitable for growing in some of the areas where they were uh, in recent history. And, you know, farmers are going to have to maybe change what um, crops or at least what varieties they plant. But if you weren't sort of um, doing your research properly, you know, before you were formulating a communications campaign about this, um, 
you might see, oh, can't grow maize anymore in this country, you know, got to rely more on cassava instead or something. Um, but if, if you were to sort of drill down into it, you might realize that in certain districts or localities, well, actually the soils wouldn't be appropriate for um, an alternative crop, or maybe the, um, you know, the landscape was completely different. And, you know, the mountainsides were so steep that they wouldn't be um, suitable for just switching to a new crop. So that's, that's just one example of how I guess um, there are differences in communicating, you know, low carbon development and kind of the mitigation side versus the, the, the adaptation side. And you have to, um, you, you truly have to, uh, I guess the, the phrase is think global, act local. And when you're communicating um, climate change uh, actions, you know, you know, possible solutions, you need to be really, really attuned to local realities as well. The geographies that you're most familiar with, I wonder if you could elaborate on what the main barriers are. I mean, I suppose we, we just touched on some of them in, in the example that you gave, but perhaps you could elaborate on what uh, other barriers or challenges you're most familiar with that you could uh, kind of explain to listeners? I think generally speaking, barriers to communicating about climate change effectively are that your messages seem to be out of touch or not relevant to the listener. I suppose that's a rather generic uh, reflection on communications. It certainly goes for climate communications. The principles are about being clear to yourself. What do I want to communicate and why? And to know your audience. It's a sort of golden rule of communications. Know what's relevant and useful to them and know where they're coming from. So probably before you start speaking, you should do a bit of listening first, right? If you're an for example, a scientist with information about how the climate in a given area might change, you might have to educate yourself first to know about um, the stakeholder group or community you want to engage with. And you might have to just accept that perhaps you're not the best spokesperson, you may not be the, the right messenger to really be able to engage with them well. You might have a message and they'll think, so what? What does it mean to me? And you need to be ready to answer that question. And if you don't really know, then maybe you're not well enough equipped um, to be a direct communicator with them. And maybe you should be partnering with, you know, uh, another group or, um, you know, media institution that's better embedded with that audience. You know, it is about uh, the, the the audience having a, a level of of trust in the in the communicator, and you know m maybe it's someone that they know personally or is an established uh, media spokesperson that they trust. And then it's not just the, the messenger, of course, it is the message itself and how it's framed and whether it resonates with people's lives and circumstances. Um, there's a lot of research across countries. And I like to use this example because it's I know for a fact it's as true in Scotland, where I'm speaking from today, as it is in Mali, uh, where my friend and colleague Yuba Sakona is from, uh, that farmers, for instance, are highly sceptical uh, being communicated at by academics. They trust other farmers who have the 
credibility of being fellow practitioners. Um, and that's why, for example, farmer field schools are really popular as a way of raising awareness about new varieties of crop and livestock and new farming techniques, which could be more climate smart, both in terms of um, responding to the impacts of climate change, but also being low in greenhouse gas emissions as well. Yeah, lovely. I mean, that this leads perfectly onto the, the next kind of area that I'd like to explore with you, which is about messengers and trust. Um, so understanding that perhaps um, whichever given character might not be the best messenger for each respective audience, how can communicators, whether the direct communicator themselves or indeed the organization um, leading outreach, how can they drive more effectiveness into communications work by trying to align that that messenger and audience? There are different ways of doing it. I mean, you can generate um, a network or uh, a far-reaching organization where you've trained up um, people from diverse backgrounds to go and communicate with their communities or on different media channels um, where they are trusted and they are authoritative voices. There's that way of going about it. There's also um, just thinking about how you develop the core materials. And this is something that um, Climate and Development Knowledge Network, um, that the alliance I'm a part of, has done a lot of, is see if you can create um, key messages, graphics, really easy to understand um, visualizations and photographs and videos as well of kind of what, what's going on with climate change, how it's affecting people, what different solutions look like, um, which are easy for people to tailor for their own circumstance. So even if you're not training the trainers or, you know, like training a whole bunch of outreach people to go and uh, deliver this message somewhere. You just create a bunch of really easy to use communications content, which people can help themselves to and sort of um, apply to their circumstance. So I'll give you an example of that in case it sounds a bit esoteric. Um, we've created various communications kits on the IPCC reports. Um, we've sort of worked with IPCC authors to make sure we've got the headline messages correct for different countries and regions. We've um, commissioned artists to do attractive, um, you know, presentations of some of the different things which are occurring, you know, how coastal areas are being affected by climate change, for example. Um, we've bought in attractive photographs illustrating some of the stories, and we've put them up um, free to use on our website. And, you know, we've push them to journalists and um, really universally to teachers, lecturers, uh, NGOs, that is non-governmental organizations, other communicators. And then we've um, gathered in the stories of how, how people have used the resources. And they've said, hey, you know, we've used them to uh, create a new curriculum for secondary school students on uh, communication in our country. Or, you know, we've used it for a whole training for our entire NGO network in another country. So I think um, if you can create really colorful easy to use materials that others can kind of um, they can become the messenger and they can use those as a trusted source then that really helps everybody are there kind of also 
practical barriers to getting the information to people? There are. Um, if if we change gears for a minute and um, think about how do you just get out weather and climate information more generally, in a way, it's not just the um, technology, although that's part of it, but it's also people's uh, working patterns, and that can be um, socially and economically differentiated. I mean, a lot of the work that we've done as um, ODI is working with our partners on, um, you know, uh, what what are the differences for men and women, uh, for example, in uh, rural developing economies and their access to really important weather and climate information, um, both in terms of what they need to know for the direct management of, of the land, of the farms, etc., keep, keeping people safe, keeping, you know, children away from the river when it's about to start flooding, etc., and we find that depending on what the, the social norms are and people's different jobs, um, you know, women or men or, or both maybe um, away in the fields or gathering water or woods at certain times. And so even if you've kind of managed to figure out that the best way to get climate information to people is via the radio or community radio well if you um, haven't done your homework and you're making all the broadcasts when everyone's out of the house because <laughs> they're they're still in the fields or or they're at the mosque or they're you know off collecting water because it's that time of day or, or whatever so it can definitely have um, gender and social um, as well as economic dimensions to it in fact, if, if I could just give you an example of um, what's worked really well. One of the projects that I really loved was one that um, a partner organization, World Vision Uganda, did. Um, they realized that uh, actually in this part of Uganda where they were working, they had the climate and weather information had never been translated into the local dialects so they actually worked to translate it into 22 local dialects and um, disseminated um, these uh, seasonal forecasts and the greater sort of climate information to local partner organizations who then promoted that further whether it was word of mouth or radio posters etc in these local dialects they managed to reach almost 190,000 farmers across 20 different districts but just the fact that they had to translate it into that many dialects is sort of an indicator of um, how much work there was to go the go the last mile you know. Mary had already given us plenty of fantastic examples, but I was keen to know if she had any more up her sleeve. Were there any stories or experiences that might be valuable for us to hear about, maybe even learn from? I had a completely different example of what great climate communication looks like. So I'd like to share it from um, a partner organization in Belize, the country with a fantastic coral reef, which is a massive tourist magnet, right? And um, one of the um, engagements that CDKN had and, and ODI um, a few years ago was with um, WWF, uh, World Wildlife Fund in, in Mesoamerica, who 
had spotted the fact that climate change was posing this massive risk to this beautiful coral reef that Belize has and to the entire coastal ecosystem. And I mean, through the warming oceans, the more acidic oceans, the sea level rise, the storms, the coastal erosion, all of that, many different impacts of climate change and posing a risk to Belize's coast and to its tourist industry as well. And they found out that 70% of Belize's tourism sector um, was highly vulnerable to climate change um, from erosion, floods, biodiversity loss and coral uh, die-off, actually. And, um, and so what they did was they thought, we need to get everybody on board with a plan for how to tackle this. So it was really a question of tailoring communications about the climate risks um, to the different sectors, really coming up with um, communications that were tailored to the tourism sector, to the fishery sector, to government, and often in, in all sorts of communications and marketing, not just um, pertaining to climate change. And um, people talk about the importance of segmenting your messages for um, different audience groups. And that's really what they did. And um, they, um, by doing this, managed to get uh, representatives of the um, different you know, sectors, particularly tourism, um, fisheries, uh, the government departments, and so on, to come together and recognize how much of the coastal ecosystem um, was at risk. And it eventually led to an integrated uh, coastal zone management plan being formulated by government and accepted by all these stakeholders. And now it's, um, you know, being, being put into operation, which is fantastic. And um, even subsequently, the government's passed further laws to um, sort of ban unsustainable activities like oil drilling, you know, in in the sensitive marine areas um, around the around the coast, um, so it really has been a highly successful but really sustained campaign. It's not only had that um, segmenting of audiences and communications, but it's had a real longevity to it as well, um, which I think is probably another critical take home message when it comes to climate change communications. You're in it for the long term. Lovely stuff. So many great examples to consider. But what stuck with you from this conversation? What can you take from it and apply to your own practice? For me, it was a couple of things. First of all, it's that we, or the organisation we represent, we might not be best placed to deliver a given message. Self-awareness on that kind of thing would appear to be paramount. Instead, strategically selected partners could offer a more effective route to impactful outreach. Next was a glaring possibility that some of the seemingly simple stuff might not have been achieved already. You'd think, surely, that important information on weather and climate would be being delivered in the right language at least, but apparently that's not even always the case. So my takeaway there is to get the basics right before trying anything more ambitious. So these are the main things that I'll be carrying away with me. But how about you? What will you be taking with you into your work? Thanks to Mary Dupas for sharing her time, expertise, and so many rich experiences with the show. You can find links to ODI's website and some other useful resources in the show notes. Thanks also to you for listening to Communicating Climate Change. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts, or by subscribing so you never miss out. Coming up, there'll be episodes about why our brains find climate change so hard to handle, 
how social media can play a part in all of this, and much more. Remember, each and every episode attempts to add to our toolkit to help us develop the skills and inspiration that we'll need for this exciting task. So be sure to stay tuned for more. For anything else, just head over to communicatingclimatechange.com. Until next time, take care.